week we were looking at Romans 13. I uh, titled that message in hindsight, uh, um, Romans 13, Under His Authority. We looked at how uh, God has established governments. Um, obviously, it was with consideration of, of yesterday, uh, uh, an opportunity that we have as a nation, as citizens, to go and vote, voting as representatives of the king. And so now that that's done, everything's good, and once again, we live happily ever after. It's so sweet that we did that, you know. I was talking with a friend, and, and we were kind of just talking about reality and how these things are such a difficulty, but yet there's simplicity. And maybe you can track with me on this. It's simplicity. You just vote. But there's also this reality. It isn't going to change anything. It's like, well, then why do I do it? And why do I mean it isn't going to change anything? God has in motion the chronology of human history. And, and we know there's, the, there's the, what's introduced to us in Genesis, this, this beginning of humanity. And we've also read, because we've recently as a church went through Revelation, we've read the end times chronology. So we know where we're at. It isn't Genesis. This is not the Garden of Eden. We get it. So we, we see with the, with the reforming and the regathering of the nation of Israel, it brought into kind of a, a tighter timeline, a, a clarity of the end of the end of the days, the last of the last days. And we live there. So do you see why this is a collision of perplexity? What difference does it made, make how I vote? It's all going to end up like this anyway. And it's funny because as I was talking with a friend, we, but then we, we really did kind of boil it down to this simplicity. It's not that complicated. Go get your sticker that said I voted. You know what I mean? Just, and if you didn't make it, you didn't make it. It's not going to change the world. We don't vote. We don't participate as citizens because we're going to usher in God's kingdom on this world. We're going we're to change the world and bring about righteousness and godly living. And because we do all this, the heaven will come down upon us. That is unbiblical teaching. It is just not true. He is going to return and set things right. He is going to return. The next significant event will be the removing of his bride, of you and I, the church, called up to be with him. And it will usher in what he's already chronicled, the things to come in the last day, whether it be you see the tribulation period to come, that seven-year period, that takes place afterwards, the tribulation. All these things are going to unfold. So I just, like I say, I try to remember living the now, knowing what's coming. And then you just kind of live that way. So we're going to actually continue a little bit. We're going to go to Daniel chapter 1. We're not going to study through the, Dan, the entire book. We're actually going to take it in a, uh, a, a verse-by-verse topical format. So, so if you, those of you that like chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse, and don't like topical, I just created confusion in your cranium. How, how can you be topical in verse-by-verse? Well, that's just what we're doing because, you know, that's... Really a great way to read the Bible. I wouldn't do it exclusively that way. But, you know, if you look at how Jesus pulled from the Old Testament, he probably didn't fit your framework. He didn't follow your design for Bible teaching, which would cause you to say, oh, well, maybe I should learn some of these things. Here's why I want to tackle this proportion. Tonight, I want to pull out, if we can, some practical lessons for honoring God in an ungodly world. I, I think we live here. 
I, I think, you know, right now, this is Wednesday afternoon, and once again, we don't know definitively who's going to be where in our governmental system. There's still, before the election even took place, lawsuits were filed. And that's just going to be the course of our country, probably, in the continuing election years. So we really don't know. We don't know how things are going to go. But I can tell you this, very little will change. Okay, when you have the same two parties flipping a coin and changing spots and doing nothing different, it isn't going to change anything. And I don't mean, I'm not a downer. You guys, I think you can pick up on that. I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't have my hope in this system. But I do know God gives us specific reference points on how to honor him in an ungodly world. In, in a world that basically wants nothing to do with him. Which is historically from just after the Tower of Babel onward, nations have dishonored their creator. And it just continued. So let's check out. Daniel chapter 1. We're going to work through Daniel. We're going to look at a couple of things. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to, as I say, try to take it as we would more in detail, the, the history and, and some of the uh, you know, um, ancestry and various things, because our mindset is, okay, how did these guys do this? How did they live in, in a very difficult world, if you would? Daniel, let's read verses 1 through 4 of Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. We'll stop right there in verse 3 just for a moment. The Babylonians invaded Israel three different times. There's some discussion among scholars about the, the, a year or two, but it basically took place in 607 B.C., 597, and 587. And it was in fulfillment of God declaring that he would discipline his people for their disobedience. Because he told them, respect the Sabbath, obey me. And they said, we'll do that when it works. When it works for us, we'll consider that, more or less. And so he basically said, you're going to be disciplined for what you're doing. The Babylonians thought they were independent, powerful. When in reality, they, like all nations, were under the influence of the living God. See, the Babylonians are going to come in and take the Hebrews, this, the Israelites, they're going to take them into captivity. And it seems that they, they are autonomous. They're a world power. But what's not known by them is God is accomplishing his purposes then, even as he does now. When we consider, let's just take a look to the left in Isaiah. In Isaiah 39, Isaiah is speaking to Hezekiah, because Hezekiah, who was sick, uh, had been healed from his sickness, and representatives from Babylon came to congratulate King Hezekiah for his recovery, because he was, well, you can read the story, of course. Hezekiah then gives this visiting entourage, these emissaries from the faraway land, he gives them a tour of the house of God. 
he points out all the good stuff and all the implements and all the gold and all the stuff. Well, Isaiah then comes to King Hezekiah and says, who was that? Ah, just some hot shots from way far away. Oh, okay. What have you shown them? Shown them everything. I just kind of give them a tour, show them how special I am, show them what we got. In Isaiah 39, verse 6, actually verse 5, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will begat, and they will, shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Eunuchs there um, really actually speaks more to a servant, um, usually a servant of a, of a high authority figure. There's other terminology for it too, but that's the common use. Anyway, so Isaiah said this is what's going to happen. Did you catch Hezekiah's reply. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. That just sounds horrible coming from a leader, does it not? It's like, really? I I bet that will happen. It's not my problem. I'll hand it off to the next generation. You know, I've almost said we'll tax them later. But I don't want to sound too contemporary in my, my implications. At least there'll be peace and truth in my days. 105 years later, it it comes to fruition exactly the way it's declared here in Isaiah 39. It's what we read there in Daniel chapter 1. I mention that because it's one more reaffirmation, uh, reminder. God is on the throne. And here he said, and 105 years go by, and those who maybe have heard Isaiah's statement and declaration or the prophecy, sure, it's going to happen. Sure, it's going to happen. And then they tell their kids. And their kids like, yeah, I heard dad talking about that, that Isaiah guy. And they tell their grandkids. And then their grandkids go, what is going on? Taken into captivity, literally transferred from Jerusalem to this Babylonian territory. These prophecies are fulfilled. Babylon, they will, as I said, 105 years later, return. And they take away the people, they plunder, and they take the young men and the treasures. We're back on verse 4 of Daniel chapter 1. Young men in whom there were no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. So what was common in in that day, and, and really for centuries, was when an invading force would take over an entire area, they would take some of the leaders and the young ones of that culture and they would assimilate them to some degree into the, 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 the reigning or the overbearing the, 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 the culture that's, that's taken over because it allowed them to kind of have some representation. So it prevented, it kind of in some ways, it gave the people that were taken into captivity some sense of representation. One of our people are there or some, but it, it, it was just really more to increase the power. And there's other reasons, of course, that they did it. 
But as this we see, you know, God has said this is what's going to happen. Because God has a way of allowing trials in our life to accomplish greater purposes. And you could look through several people. Joseph, right? Did Joseph go through some tough times? Some really, really tough stuff. But what did God accomplish on the other end? Now, I'm sure if he just said to Joseph, this, this is how it's going to go down. You're literally going to end up in a pit first. You're going to get accused of very horrible things. You're going to get put in jail. You're going to run the jail. You'll come out of the jail, then you'll be running the kingdom, or you're second in line. And it's going to be a really painful process. And Joseph probably would have said, like you and I would say, can we just go to the end and not start here? Can we just kind of bypass some of this heart-wrenching stuff, this heartbreak, heartache? And, of course, God would say, this is how you get to here. These are some of the things that will unfold, that will take place. These young men are, are placed, as it says there, that they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. So they really picked the cream of the crop, so to speak, um, when they would take over. And it's what they did here. We know as we look now in verse 5, the king appointed for them, speaking of those who he, they had drawn out of Israel. Now bear in mind, as we're going to see, these are kids, or young men, teenagers, that were, were like, I could say maybe like a Hebrew of Hebrews. They, they were uh, taught in culture. They were taught in the ways of God. And yet they're torn from their families and placed in a secular government. The king appointed for them, I'm reading verse 5, a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them so that they might so that at the end of that time they might serve the king. Fifteen to seven year old, seventeen year old young men were being prepared to serve in a secular system, trained and placed in position where they would be um, servant, um, advisor, counselor type capacity, even as young men. And they'll be before they'll have access, or they'll be brought before the king, and their whatever their what you might think of as their area of expertise would be. We know this is prophetically declared. We know this wasn't just Babylonian um, persistence to, to overpower Jewish presence. We know God allowed this. Isn't that kind of like challenging to some of your theology sometimes? God allowed this. He's, he's doing things that are beyond the scope of, of natural or everyday routine mundane reasoning. He's doing something bigger. And so here these guys are going to, now that they're going to be set in this school of training for three years. And, and they're going to get you know, well taken care of. They're going to be well fed. We see in verse 6, you know, from those who have the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So these were the ones that are going to be kind of the focal point through, through Daniel. You know, his three comrades will be at least, in the, uh, as we know, some of the stories here out of the book of Daniel. Now, when they're taken into captivity, they're putting in, put into this special training. They have the, the chief of the eunuchs over them, this guy who's going to lead them. And notice what we see in verse 7. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Here's an interesting thing. 
they've been brought as, as Hebrews, as followers of Jehovah, into this secular system. And their names are going to be changed by those within the system. Let's review. Let me give you the definition for their names. Daniel means God is judge. That's his Hebrew name. Uh, Hananiah means beloved of the Lord. Mishael is who is as God. Azariah, the Lord is my help. That's their names. And I, give, I believe that helps us see their parents... And when these children were born, these young men were born, they named them what they sensed God wouldn't have them to be named. They named them, as you can see, in regards to the relationship they had with God. So they're known as someone with a relationship with God, and these declarations are made. Now, guess what happens? This isn't just a, you know, well, we're going to give you like a surname or like a nickname. This, this eunuch, this chief of the eunuchs, he is giving them profane names. He calls Daniel, you're going to be Belshazzar, which is actually who, how he'll be known through his time serving, which means Bel, you've heard of Bel, Bel, Bel's prince. It's not the same Bel, but it's Bel's prince. It's a pagan god. Now you're known as this pagan god's prince. It, 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 I kind of run, we don't have things that can really make a direct association with such real clarity. But let me tell you some of the others. Shadrach. Shadrach means illumined by the sun god. Meshach, who is like Shaq, not basketball, who is like Shaq, the Babylonian deity. Abadnego, or Abadnego. Servant of Nego, which is Nego, was a Babylonian deity as well. They were given profane names by their boss. Are you tracking with me? Do you, do, you, do you live? You know, we know where we're living, right? And I know a lot of people face these type of challenges in the workplace and where they have to engage and where they have to live to, to functionally, in a very practical way, provide for their family. And, and they're, they're spoken up differently. But understand, it's so important that we know who we are before God. Who we are before people should be consistent. In other words, we're not another person. But what people have to say is going to come and go. Your, your loved ones may be kind in one season and terrible in another season. We've seen it happen. You see it when a marriage is broken up. You see it when there's not only spousal stress, but sibling stress. You see it with... You know, sadly, what we see, I don't know, maybe this is my life experience, but I don't think it's exclusive. At the time of a memorial, in the time of a difficulty, we see the ugly in humanity. Is that not true? You ever been there when people are like dividing up an inheritance? Before they got in the practice of legally saying it and putting it down on paper, which means nothing. It just means it's going to be more expensive to pay somebody else to take your stuff so no one else can have it because the family can't figure out how to distribute it. Because it's, isn't it ugly? It, it, there's a side of humanity that comes out. People will sometimes just be terrible, but be known to God as you're known by God. And, and that's what I want to say here because we all, in this world, there's just things that are different. And this guy, I believe, I think he's kind of got a, a weak leadership trait this leader of the um, eunuchs. They're supposed to do what they're told to do, these young men. 
but they have character, they have integrity, they have identity. And let's see how now that's going to be challenged as we, as we move along into verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So you're, I believe, about, about 600 years before Christ in this rough timeline we're looking at. King's provisions were offered as sacrifices to the king's gods. So that, that's just, it was just a, an act of oblation. It was an act where they, it was just a part of it. You didn't, you know, it came from the, the, the farm or the ranch, so to speak, and then it was brought in, and then it was offered as a sacrifice, and then it was brought to the king, and then, you know, distributed accordingly. Um, it, it was common among many pagan leaders, uh, even the Greeks, at the time of the New Testament. You, you remember they, they practiced it because in, when, when Paul's addressing the issue in 1 Corinthians 10, um, where he says, if you have meat that's offered to idols... Don't ask, was this offered to idols? Because if they offered it to idol, that's, that's their deal. You're not, you're not, you don't worship that idol. But there was a complexity in the culture because it's like, well, if it's offered to idols, I can't eat it because you offered it to a pagan deity. And I, I'm not a part of that whole thing. And so you can check out 1 Corinthians 10, you know, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And really simple guidelines. Let's just get, eat what you eat, eat with thanks. And, and don't, you know, make a deal about what somebody else did with that. Well, the situation here is, is a carryover. I mean, it's a, more of an orientation of, of where this thing in First Corinthians shows up in the New Testament. But the, the kings at that time would, would, would make it a big thing that this is, this is for our God. And you know what they've already done? They've already renamed these four servants after their gods, and now they're to eat the food of the gods that's been prepared by the gods. And, and Daniel purposes in his heart. He's like, I, I can't do that. And it was a personal conviction, I think. We're not told what the others had purposed. We're just told that Daniel had. Uh, seems to be under his leadership, they are, they're willing to stay united. Purpose in his heart. Just think about that. I just say this. This is best done before the confrontation. In other words, you can't sleep at night. You wake up at three in the morning or whatever thinking about things. I was sharing with a friend recently. Um, my brain just turns on randomly for no apparent reason. Like no, it has no concept of schedule. You know what I'm talking about? You just wake up thinking about something. Like, was I, did I go to bed thinking about that? Why does this wake up thinking about that? Why is that in my head? And I, I don't know, I, maybe we'll just blame it on age or I, there's a lot of other factors. But nonetheless, I find at those times, I, I sometimes think about real world stuff. And I try not to get too deep because the only deep thing I want is sleep. So I just kind of work through. But you, you kind of ponder and you wonder. And, and sometimes you have something scheduled. And it's not a middle of the night thing. It's the first thing in the morning. And, and you've got to decide before the meeting or the briefing. You've got to decide, how am I going to handle this? And you've got a purpose in your heart because you know something's coming. You, you, you can go fearfully or you can go in any other form, but th- the meaning's going to happen. And I encourage you, you know, purpose in your heart. Daniel determined this before the confrontation. 
Um, it can happen in relationships in various ways. Um, I apply it here, as we're going to look at in Colossians 3 a little later, um, in, a, in a workplace type setting, because it's kind of the, the zone it's in here. But it's not just the employer-employee interaction. It's the influence of those that are around you as a person who's making a, a purpose in your heart. And here's some things. Purpose speaks of to set your values, your limits, to know your tendencies, to establish and determine. So it's with some reasonable, wise speculation or anticipation, I'm going to have this conversation. And when it comes, I want to make sure these are my limits. These are my boundaries. These things are non-negotiable in the very heart. And so we see it just says he, he purposed in his heart. Now that is not in any way disrespectful to the leadership that he doesn't agree with. The leadership in a secular system, and he's like, oh, man, how am I going to handle this? How, how do we deal with this? He purposed that he wasn't going to defile himself. His, his relationship with God is the issue here. His perception, his processing, his point of maturity, however you want to think of it, he realized, I, this is between me and the Lord, and I, I'm not, I, can't, I can't cave on this one. I've been carried off here. I, I've been, I'm, I, I'll, I'll, this is who I am. This is where I am. This is what it is. But there's a line in the sand right here. And, and this is as far as I go. What was interesting, though, is, uh, you know, he established, he determined. And then, you know, he, he I, I would say he knew the reason why. And he was wise in how he communicated. See, I can be very firm, you could be very definitive, you could have purposed in your heart, this is how I'm going to handle this situation in the neighborhood with this neighbor, this situation with this awkward relationship, this thing happening at work. This is how I'm going to do it. And you can be a complete jerk. That's not what he's doing here. You've got to think, how am I going to communicate? How do I do this? Not just to win the battle, but to actually accomplish a purpose. Because his goal, obviously his desire, is to be honoring to God. So we see in verse 9, Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. So don't forget, God goes before you. You don't need to blow your own trumpet. You don't need to broadcast how you're going to do it. He goes before you. And I believe because we, when we realize that and remember that, Lord, you got this. I just don't know my part. I'm just not sure how to curtail or curb my emotion or, or generate some passion. I don't know how to speak with wisdom, but I know you got this. And it's interesting, when we know that he has it, when, when he goes before us, it affects how we engage with people. Let's go ahead and read the story a little further, and I'm going to pull out some points there. Um, it says in verse 10, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king. Who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over the poor guys. Verse 12. Please test your servant for ten days. And let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then our appearance be examined. And the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servant. And we'll pull out of that because Daniel was wise. 
and respectful and communicated respectfully, he had a healthy dialogue. Do you see what this boss, the boss is actually not saying, shut up and eat it, which some would want to say, or it seems like he would maybe even be tilted towards. He's just saying, okay, here's the deal. You, we, we, okay, we go through with this. It's nothing on you. It's my head that gets detached from my body. My head, my neck's in the noose. So when he sees you in bad shape, he's going to want to know why the guys he's invested three years into are not being taken care of, and how come they're not going to be at their peak as he has set this program up. So the guy, but he's dialoguing. It's so crazy because sometimes it's not that what we lack. It is what we lack in the world today. Absolutely. You cannot argue otherwise. There is not healthy dialogue between people who disagree. There's too much disrespect. There's too much disregard for another person's life experience or position. And here we see here are two people completely opposite. An employee-employer relationship, a completely different religious perspective, you would call it in today's terminology. And yet, there's a healthy dialogue. I'm going to draw back off of verse 9, because when we honor God, our speech honors God. When we honor God, our speech, not just the words that we choose, but the way we engage. Jesus engaged with very contrary people, correct? People that literally would, they thought, would kill him. By all physical measure, they got the job done. They despised him. But a Pharisee, John 3, Nicodemus by name, would come to Jesus at night because he wanted to dialogue. There were, he, had, he knew, I, I got to talk to him. And other people would come to him. He, 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 he engaged in such a way that people could approach him. And when we honor God, our speech honors God. It's in such a way that you can engage. It doesn't mean it's not firm. It doesn't mean it's not concise. It, it, it's, it's got compassion written on it. It's got empathy embedded within it. And, and so then as we engage with people, it, there's just, it's just something that happens. It's beyond measure by vocabulary and definitions and such. When God goes before us, we see it. First, in the way we handle the situation internally. See, if I know, if you know, in the scenario that's caused you unrest, the situation that's developed... If you know God goes before you, if God gives you favor, that God has this, you handle it different internally. You process it differently, correct? You, you just think of it different. You, just, you work it through different. And when we realize that, when we handle it internally differently, because we know God has doing, he's, got, he's led me here. They didn't go, you know, we shouldn't have been out vandalizing the neighborhood, and then we wouldn't have been captured and taken into captivity. They weren't vandalizing the neighborhood. They were just taken over by an over, another nation. So you, they knew, they, they're, they're discerning. They know, God, you got this. And when we know that, we handle it differently internally. And then we handle it different with others. We handle others differently. If you have a peace about what your situation is and you're calm, then you handle it differently. And, and if you have to be very boisterous and very like, you know, persuasive and gathering an audience, then you got to say, well, why do I have to do that if God's got this? Why, why is this so important? You know, it's, it's just, if you're disrespectful, it may be because you've forgotten the power of God. 
More specifically, if I'm disrespectful in a situation and driving a resolution, I've forgotten the power of my God, personal God, who has this. Uh, in the last couple years, but there's others, but the last couple years have been particularly tough relationally with Kim and I as we've dealt with things, you know, in the community, uh, bigger things in the family, different things. And the only peace that can put you to sleep and allow you to sleep is the knowing that God goes before us. In the battles of life and the adversity and difficulty and the false accusations and all the silly stuff that takes place on this planet, when you know God has us, you engage differently. And, and I believe that's something we can see from, from the way they handle this, that they knew God had us. So they dialogue with this boss in such a fashion that he says, okay, but what if this? And you see, as we continue on there in verse 15, at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter and flesh than all the young men who ate the del- portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. That doesn't mean they were vegetarians, but they were not taking the, the, the meat offered to the pagan deities. But we see mutual respect, even though the government leader, this leader, this chief of the eunuchs, disagreed initially. Remember, he didn't agree. But I believe the way they handled it affected the way that other person handled it and allowed the favor of God to actually flow into the situation. And you can draw your own um, application for sure. Moving on to verse uh, 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. They received detailed general knowledge, I would say. Uh, Not only knowledge, but skill. We see wisdom. But also personal abilities. Uh, Example of Daniel being able to interpret dreams. Now, I think it's interesting that God chose to impart that wisdom through the interaction of an ungodly system through three years of training. It's very fascinating to me because we know he could have just poured it in and it been done and they wouldn't have had to do the time. But something's happening that's bigger than just the IQ, bigger than just the uh, wise man rating system. You know, there's something there. It's relational. It's God impacting people and doing things beyond even what we would even think or consider. Verse 18, now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Back in verse 5, remember, that was a three-year training period that they were going to be, you know. And like Joseph, it wasn't just learning a system. Joseph was learning the Egyptian system. It was actually making a leader. It was actually developing character and integrity within him through some of these challenges and trials. And so... I like in verse 19, the king interviewed them and among them all, none were found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. What I thought stood out in that is their names. They are mentioned by the most important name in relationship. How God knows you is more important than how your boss knows you. And see here, they're, they're, you know, it should be the same person. You understand that when I say that about your boss, you know, the, your boss or whoever, you know, some of your challenge in life, you know, they should see the attributes and their qualities too. They just may not, they may not want to admit it. 
You know, some people can see uh, uh, attributes and characteristics and qualities in your life that, that are complementary. They're, they're pluses, they're attributes, but they won't acknowledge them. They'll point out your faults because sometimes their own issues are too big of an issue to be in any way complementary. Sometimes they just are patronizing the best. But the point of this is, you know, God, you know who you're known by, as by God. It's not the name as we would enunciate in American culture. It's who you are before God is who you are. Do you know it's really easy to fool the church? You really can't fool God. I know people, I've dealt with these challenges over the years because of where God has placed me, but there's some people that want to please the church more than they want to please the Lord. They want to connect with this person. They want to tell this person, that person. They want to, they want to be pleasing to the, the populace and the congregation. But they won't surrender to the Lord. And it's an odd thing, but the Lord knows. And that's why sometimes we, we go through challenges because we're like running away from what we should be sopping and dealing with. So be, be known by God. Know that relationship. I, I just see it. And they could have been, you know, we know them as later. They'll be mentioned with the, the, the pagan names. Verse 20, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. I don't think there's a mathematical comparison. It's meant to convey to you that they were way above everybody else. Well, why is that? Well, obviously they weren't eating that stupid meat. If they were vegetarian, they're going to be smarter because their brain's not drawn down by cow blood. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's like, seriously, why, why is it? We're told because God gave them favor. We're told that God gave them this wisdom. He poured into them what they needed to do what they needed to do. He gave that to them. And in all matters, and that's fascinating because I believe as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be the best at what we do. It doesn't mean that we're going to maybe run a piece of equipment better or we're going to be handle you know, certain service work better than, in, than the top of the top of the top. We should do whatever we do in word or deed should be done heartily as unto the Lord. And we shouldn't be, you know, just slacking it. Oh, you know, it's all going to burn someday anyway. I'm just going to get by, get my check and go home. Which is, it, it, that's true in the church and it's true in, in, in the, the non-believing world. And it ought not be. We should long for this. We should want this. I want to have the understanding. I want to, under, I want to know how things function in this world. So that I can, with that knowledge, can then engage with somebody to tell them this world's going down. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't want to be so detached that, you know, well, dinosaurs didn't really exist. They were just made of plastic and Hasbro made them up so we could sell stuff. I mean, some of the weird things that people come up with that, to kind of discount things. But to know certain things that are archaeologically accurate. Or to, to peer into the stars with the, the equipment that we have and, and go, Wow. And not deny it, but look what it says here. That, that they, were, they, were, they had literature and, and, and literature and wisdom and, and all this understanding. They were head and shoulders above those other people around, the other people that were categorized as wise men. Verse 21, thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. 
Daniel served under Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, um, was murdered by Darius or Darius, however you want to say. You remember Belshazzar? You heard the writing on the wall, the, 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 the hand writing on the wall. And so it was Bel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and then his son Belshazzar. Then um, Belshazzar was kind of, a, it's all pretty listed here in, in this book of Daniel, was killed by Darius or Darius the Mede. And then, you know, the whole thing with Darius, he had, actually had favor with, leaned towards Daniel. But then you have the lion's den ordeal there in chapter 6. But then chapter 10 introduces King Cyrus, which is what we read about here. Which means the entire 70-year period of Babylonian captivity, Daniel had this position in government under different leaders. Different positions. But he was still in that position. That speaks a lot about his relationship with God. It doesn't mean that he knew all this. It's just his relationship with God. So I want to close out our time. We've got a few minutes left to just do a brief synchronization of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to take from what we've looked here in just this overview, obviously, of Daniel 1. And we're going to use it as a filter to see how it applies to you and me um, I went, uh, I was able to, a friend and I had a prayer meeting on Tuesday, started at about 9.30, we launched the boat, uh, went upstream a little ways, and, uh, you know, prayed, and uh, had some worship, a lot more fishing than either one of those to some degree, but as we got out and, you know, we're there, um, when you're on the water, polarized glasses allow you to see a different world a different way. You can actually see things that without that filter, that type of adjustment, you just can't see it. So I want to say, let's go to Colossians 3. And in Colossians 3, I want to read through this. And once again, I'm not going to be expositional and, and drawing out the meanings of the words and all these things. I, I want to keep it. How do we live in this life with knowing that God provides, knowing that God places us in positions of government in an ungodly government, Knowing that we're functioning in a, in a civil realm, meaning uh, you know, a civil job, not, a, not a, a government job, civilian job. We're doing various things in this, this opportunity of capitalism, capitalism. And we're engaging in people that really are contrary to the very core of what we believe. The, the very depth of it. So how do we honor God in an ungodly world? Let's just kind of bring what we've seen from Daniel into Colossians chapter 3, and it begins in verse 1 with since. Now, it probably says in your translation, in New King James, it says, if then you were. It, if then is, is, it's not meaning you were or you weren't. It means since then, you know, well, if you were, you kind of see how it's stated, it kind of carrying. So since you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I'm pretty confident that that Daniel had an eternal view in a temporal world. He had his God in mind. Because, you know, what happened? Why did he get thrown in the lion's den? What was he doing that got got him in so much trouble? Praying. Praying. Praying because he learned it from Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, Definitely not. 
praying because he had a relationship with the living God. And he was not going to be told, you can't have a conversation with your God. He wasn't defiant, and he was defiant, but he wasn't uh, disrespectful. He just said, okay, I guess that's how it goes. You see my point? Meant of um, an eternal view as we deal with these things, knowing who are, how much more you and I, because we live where Daniel's over here, we live on this side of the cross. And Daniel and the prophets were told in in 1 Peter that these men and women of old that, that lived in those days... They heard the prophecies of Ezekiel. They heard all the different declarations, and some of them were passed along, and some of them were contemporary. And they heard them, and they longed to know what they meant. What does this mean of this Messiah of Genesis 3? Who is this this one to come? Who is this prophet? How is this going to be? And it all kind of brings you to the cross. To the life of Jesus Christ, the, the, the very death that he died, the very you know, conquering of death and hell and the resurrection, the bodily ascension, brings it to all that. And you and I, we're over here. And we get to look with the whole thing, with the bright light of the cross illuminating all of it. And we get to see all this and we, we should be saying, man, I want to keep eternity in view while I lived for his glory today in this temporal world. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Once again, that eternity in view. In light of that, he will return. In light of the truth that he's going to appear and you will appear with him. Put to death your members which are on the earth. In other words, live like you're his. Live like it. Right now, because, you know, he's going to return, put to death your members. That's not church membership, you understand that? Put to death the members, it's conveyed, the body. You know, we're told in other places that, you know, the the body of Christ, each has their own place, each person has their own gifting. You know, the the hand does what the hand does, the eyes do what the eyes do. Read Ephesians 4, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, I believe Romans 12 as well. They convey this metaphor, this picture. And so you know, there's the, the body of Christ, but then there's also what is seen as your body, your members, your part. There's a picture where God says, you know, there's a part of you that's on track. There's a part of you that's dialed up, but then there's also a part of you that can be distracted. You could have your hands, you know, kind of you can contain them, but you got a lustful eye and you're looking around. And it says, put, you know, put your members, you know, which are, put them to death fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So those things have been taking place. It's coming. Don't join in with it. Don't say, could I have a dose of wrath? As his child, realize that that's what saved you, is the knowledge of your sin. His grace saved you. But it's the knowledge of your sin that responded to that invitation. Don't partner with it because it goes on to say, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. When you live that way, that's who you were, but you're not that person. Don't be conformed to this world and be taken on the look of this lamp. Verse 8, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. In other words, don't adorn yourself with the things of the flesh that we've seen in Romans, you know, to make no provision for the flesh and the lust thereof. Put these things off or set them aside. 
What are they? Anger. Wrath. Malice. Malice is not just disagreement. It's more common than we realize. It's intent to do harm. Malice carries the intent to do harm dynamic. Well, none of us would intend to do harm. Well, be careful. Because there's sometimes and in some situations, you do desire harm for people. Especially if they've really hurt you. But you know you're not supposed to do that, so you deny it. Oh, no, no, I don't, I don't want them to be harmed. I just don't want them to succeed in anything. Hmm. I mean, how's that work? How can you do that? And see, the problem we run into is when we won't admit that to ourselves. You remember what we were looking at, what I mentioned? You know, because Daniel understood his relationship with God. He understood God had it. It affected who he was as a person. He believed that God was who God is. When we realize that, we can be honest with ourselves. Like, man, I don't like that I think that way. I don't like that I'm inclined. Where did that thought come from that 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 would happen to that person? God, forgive me. The Bible says very clearly, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, And that's one of the applications. This is stuff that, you know, that he's talking to Christians about anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your face, well, your mouth. Um... Speaking evil of God, these things do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Do you think Daniel and his three friends were were challenged by any of this? Do you think this realm that named them profane names and put them in position spoke in God-honoring ways? You know, it's just as profane as some of your experiences and where you've had to work and where you've had to be educated and where you've had to go. And so you know they were tested. And it continues. There's nothing new under the sun. It's still a challenge, but recognize this. this, Yeah, that was the old me, but it's not the new me. That's how I used to be, but it's not how I am currently. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I used to be. And I think if we see that, then it takes away any sense of self-guilt or a type of of, of, of prideful condemnation that we would put on ourselves. When it says, do not lie to one another, the lies you tell yourself are worse than you'd say about someone else. The lies we tell ourselves sometimes. And what I mean is, you know, the the destructive, the critical, the, the things that are not sourced from God. But we'll tell her, I can't do that. I, can't. Oh, yeah. I hear some sad stories of people get caught in self-condemnation because they've has, they believe, they, they know, they love God. They know they're born again. They know they're empowered by God. And they say things they shouldn't say. And they do things they shouldn't do. And they condemn themselves. They beat themselves up. And they lie to themselves. You'll never be. You'll never be better. You'll always be this way. What is with me? I, I can't go to church anymore. If they knew what I'm like, oh, I can't. They, that's a lie. Yes, you're not perfect. Yes, you've got a ways to go. But realize this. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it in your life. The very way I got started, the very way you got started in following Jesus Christ is you had nothing and he gave you everything. 
You had nothing to strike a deal with. I had nothing to bring to the plate. I had nothing but a broken heart and shame and embarrassment. And he told me through his word, you're mine. You're mine. And I will now do a work in you. It wasn't specific to me. It wasn't some prayer that makes me more holy than anyone else. It's from his word. Like things like this, like you're a new person, Dan, you know that. Now live like you're alive. Now live like you're the new person. Don't live like the dead guy. Live like you're alive. Don't lie to one another. You know, put on the new man and get this. And this is where this ties together. Who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You're renewed in knowledge. You know, I mean, I've shared it a lot. I, I share it a lot because it's important to me on a daily basis. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what well, is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be changed from the inside out, transformed, because I'm willing to say I'm not that same person. I want to be like Christ. I want to be transformed into his image, into his likeness. You're put on the new man. Verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. You remember how we started to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because the body of Christ has unity. But we have to realize it's not about the Calvary process or the, this group or that denomination or this order. There's one body of Christ And we're all united and all knit together as we learn to grow in that. Therefore, verse 12, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you also were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God, as we would consider this and it would resonate, it would work through our minds and our logic and our rationale, but that it would resonate in our hearts and you would reveal to us individually how to live, how to let go of those things that would hold us back, how to take hold of the truth you've laid before us, how to see more clearly eyes that are not blinded by our own perceptions or our own opinions, that we would see more clearly your love, your grace, the hope that comes from you, the truth that you've offered us, Lord, as you have forgiven us. Show us, Lord, what it means to forgive others. You know that one person that we don't even want to say his or her name right now. You know them, Lord. Show us how to deal with that relationship, with that situation. We need you, God. We rejoice in you. May your peace rule in our hearts because you've called us to that. Thank you, Jesus. Be glorified. Move in and through us this week for your glory. May we be people living in a world that doesn't know you, but revealing to them the one we know. For your glory, in your name. Thank you, Jesus. 
Amen. All right.